Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon, and a good afternoon to Huang Hongxiang. Uh, welcome back to our show.、Uh, he joins us this afternoon from、uh, Nelsprit, which is about three hours outside of、uh, Johannesburg. And、uh, we had、uh, Hongxiang on the show earlier this week to talk about ivory. And, and as we mentioned back then, Hongxiang is a freelance journalist based in South Africa right now, but he writes for Chinese, English, and South African media. And he's also, most interestingly, doing a fellowship at the China Africa Reporting Project. At Wits University, right there alongside where Kobus is.、Uh, welcome back to the show, Hongxiang. Thank you. And today we're going to delve right back into the question of ivory, and it's been a topic that's been an ongoing, consistent theme on our Facebook page. It seems to dominate the meme right now, at least for the past two or three months, if not longer, of the China-Africa relationship. And and what we're going to talk about today is the yawning gap between China. And really, the rest of the world, in many respects, on you know what、okay. what this is happening and the effects that it's happening. And let let us kind of state right off the bat here. I want to put a couple disclosures.、Uh, first and foremost,、um, from our point of view, I think Kobus, I speak on behalf of you, is that、um, we don't we don't have a stake in this. I think the elephants are the only things that we care about, and the, and the rhinos themselves.、Um, time、yeah. is running out. Um, it is horrific. It is offensive. It is tragic, and it is just ultimately sad what's happening.、Um, so I want to make it very clear that if anything, if there's any partisanship here, we fall partisan on the side of the animals. Number one. Number two, with Hongxiang,、um, this is a very charged and passionate topic, and people are very, very quick to kind of. Put people in boxes, and I think it's very important here that when we talk to Hong Xiang, he is not a representative of the Chinese government. He doesn't actually represent Chinese society because no one can represent Chinese society of 1.3 billion people.、Um, he is simply a journalist who is kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit to kind of give us some insights into、uh, the cultural values related to ivory, the Chinese mindset related to ivory, and a little bit into the political situation as to why the Chinese are simply. Uh, refusing to follow some of the directions and the pressure that's coming from the outside world. Okay, is that good enough,、uh, Hongxiang, for dis- disclosures and disclaimers? Sure. Okay, let's get started.、Um, and I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm going to come out and say it. You know, most of the world thinks China is the biggest asshole in the world right now for the fact that it simply will not close the ivory carving factories, and for, and, and it even goes farther than that. That senior Chinese wildlife officials deny the fact that they are responsible for the surge of killings of elephants and rhinos. Now we know empirically that it is because of the surging middle class in China, because of the demand for ivory in China, that the killing has intensified, and the price of ivory today is is if not at an all time high, close to an all time record, fueled largely by Chinese consumer demand. So. I've kind of laid that out there. Give us a little bit of insight as to what your thinking is in terms of how the Chinese, both from a political point of view and from a consumer point of view, look at the ivory question, but from China looking out. Well, so I think politically, the question, the problem with ivory is going to be more and more important in China because now, as China goes going out, like the Chinese investment in Africa is like going to be more and more heavy. So we really don't want to let this kind of things ruin like the relationship between China and Africa. So politically, it's going to be more and more important. But as you said, I think like 
there is a huge understanding and communication gap between China and Africa right now. For example, you can even look at the 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 present of Chinese media. You may realize there are a lot of like Chinese media in Africa, like CCTV, Xinhua. But you also need to realize like this kind of media, they are a little bit different than when we are talking about the more market-oriented, professional, like in-depth reporting media in China, like Southern Weekly and Caixin. So. Therefore, if you actually do some Google in Chinese, you will find there are not many actually Chinese ivory or Chinese rhino horn stories like they are written in Africa and sent from Africa. Let, let me, so there's sorry, a huge gap. Let me just push you a little sure. bit. Nobody watches CCTV sure. Africa. It's it's not. It's, <laughs> it, it really we know that for a fact. That do you even watch CCTV Africa? I mean, you're Chinese. Well. No, I haven't. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, um, so I'm so the only one. You're the only one, and you're paying to watch it. I mean, so um, so the fact that CCTV Africa may be reporting on this is insignificant. Um, the other part of it, what you said, and, and again, I don't mean to be negative here, but I'm I'm kind of I want to get to the deeper sure. point here. Um, you know, what you said was very interesting is that the Chinese government may be more sensitive to. To, to African uh, African governments about this issue because they have such key investments, but it hasn't come up in bilateral relations. You know, Kenyatta, Uruguay, Kenyatta brought it up, but it was probably a secondary or tertiary level issue uh, in the Sino-Kenyan talks. I guess my point is, tell me about what's happening domestically. Why do Chinese love ivory so much, and why don't you think that the Chinese simply why will they why won't they just shut the carving factories? Why won't they just? It's very easy for us to see on the outside that this consumption of ivory is having a devastating effect. Why doesn't Beijing just stop and ban it? Well, so regarding your first question, why the Chinese love ivory? Well, I think this answer is actually similar similar to why people love diamond, why people love gold, why people love to buy those. Gucci LV bags. Why? I think if you want to understand why Chinese love ivory, you need to understand it from this point of view. There are a lot of things that they are not that valuable actually in nature, but because gradually it just become like a symbol of rich, a symbol of power, a symbol of like elegance, a symbol of like social status. So just people like to buy it. And you know when Chinese have these things, this culture of like bringing souvenir to home when you go outside, and so what can they buy in Africa? Usually, like what I see, for example, in Mozambique, the Chinese usually only buy two things in Mozambique: one is ivory, one is black wood. So the question of like why Chinese like ivory, I think just like any other people in any other country, why they like to buy diamond. I think that's actually the same question. Um, I wonder if we could um, widen the, the discussion slightly and, and, and also talk about rhino horn. Um, you know, kind of because in, in your reporting, you've been referring both to ivory and to rhino horn. But I think yes. in certain ways, the two are kind of quite different. Um, I wonder if, it could, if I could throw it out to both of you guys, actually, because you, you know, kind of, um, if you could, in the first place, Hongxiang, if you could talk about, you know, what is the distinction between ivory and rhino horn and who uses each of those, you know, kind of how are, how are the markets different within China? And then, Eric, um, obviously, nowadays Vietnam is recognized as one of the greatest, well, the largest kind of markets for rhino horn. And I wonder if you could distinguish how is it used differently in Vietnam than in China? Hongxiang, you start first. Okay, sure. 
So yeah, I think Ivory and Rhino Horn, they are totally different. In terms of market, I agree that like China is responsible for the majority of Ivory market in the world. But in terms of Rhino Horn, well, based on my few investigation, now I feel very few Chinese people are actually involved in Rhino Horn business. And and then we can examine like the demand for these two products. Ivory, I think, is more like ornament. It's more similar to people buying gold, diamond, and all those kind of luxury bags. It's just a very like massive public thing. But Rhino Hong, usually people buy it for medical purpose. In the Asian Chinese like medical book, it actually writes down like there are some kinds of Rhino Hongs that could be used for some kinds of disease. Yeah, which but I don't think that yeah, sure. which which have been what? disproven uh, for the most part that they don't have any aphrodisiac effect, they don't have any curative effects for cancer, and this is what's fueling the demand here in Vietnam is that there's a perception that rhino horn is almost a cure-all. It's a magical type of uh, yeah, it's uh, a magic. It's magic, and and what's interesting is when you talk to people here about rhino horn. Um, they look at it as any other kind of product. So to them, when they look at a, a Western pharmaceutical product from any of the big pharma companies like Johnson & Johnson or Abbott, they don't ask how did the ingredients for this product come to my store. They don't ask about you know the fact that Johnson & Johnson may be sourcing some of the materials for that pharmaceutical product from the Brazilian rainforest or from you know any other parts of the yeah, world. Sure. Where they just they look at it as a product like any other. So there is no connection between them purchasing rhino horn and the bloody slaughter that it takes to produce that and the journey that it takes illicitly across you know oceans and continents to get here. So I think there's this disconnect on the eyes of the consumer as to the effect that it's having. And this is again one of the problems that I think the the western environmental movement is having is by shouting and yelling at people and you know and saying you're a killer um, and being very very strong and passionate which I understand where the passion comes from it actually I don't think is effective because people don't feel like they're doing anything wrong. The other thing is is that a lot of Chinese and Vietnamese will actually turn the tables uh, on uh, on Western consumers and say, well, listen, you know, we may we have factories here that work at substandard labor, and I don't see you getting too excited about the human suffering that's going on. I don't see you getting too excited about the fact that the iPhone that you're consuming is polluting the Chinese countryside to no end because the Chinese are paying the environmental price for all the cheap crap that shows up in Walmart and Target. So there's this hypocrisy that goes on that Western environmental activists are being very very selective in their outrage. Clearly. Ivory and elephant and, 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 and rhinos, it's, again, sad, sad and tragic, but it is selective outrage on one point of view. So I think that's very interesting. I wanted to get to you a question for you, Hong Xiang, about mm -hmm. the, the politics of this. I've made the argument in past shows, and I'd like to see if you agree or disagree, and I make it on, on the Facebook page all of the time, that there is no political will inside China to ban ivory. And, and I'll say this because President Xi Jinping has every morning when he wakes up, he's got about 50 things that he's got to do in order to keep China from falling apart. He's got, you know, nuclear North Korea. He's got nuclear Pakistan on his borders. He's got the U.S. He's got, a, you know, an island dispute with the Japanese. He's got inflation. He's got corruption. He's got a banking crisis. I mean, the list of things that China has to do from the wheels falling off to prevent the wheels falling off the wagon is massive. And, and, and China is obviously environmentally just, you know, completely screwed in many respects. 
Um, so he's got to do a lot of things. And picking a fight with elites and the middle class who are purchasing ivory, as you said, it's viewed like gold. It's viewed like diamonds, um, is not going to be helpful for him. And so I'm kind of skeptical that, that, that Xi Jinping would actually, or any bureaucracy in China, would pick a fight by doing this. Um, and this is something that's difficult to explain to people who aren't familiar with Chinese domestic politics. Is that a theory you agree or disagree with? Well, so I think this is also a very complicated question. On the one hand, I would say like the government does show some willingness to stop this ivory and rental home trade. In fact, I think the punishment and, for example, even the level of security like in the Chinese custom in terms of ivory rental home product is already much, much stronger than a lot of some other countries. But on the other hand, I think you are right. Like, so in China, well, you have a lot, a lot of complicated problems. I, even for me, like, even I'm the president, I won't, like, really view Ivory as the top five or even top ten issues. I believe if you are the president, you would think the same. But on the other, on, on the other way of thinking, actually, I would say banning Ivory is not that difficult and it's not, it's not like, well, it's not as, totally not as difficult as, for example, the situation of Bo Xilai, this kind of high-level Chinese government official corruption. Because although people have this kind of demand, but this demand is, is more like for diamond, for gold, for luxury bags, these kind of things. It's actually not a very hard demand. So it's possible to totally ban this trade. I think the pro- one of the problems in China is like even among, like from the pu- public, there's not enough awareness and demand from the public to say, oh, we China are being blamed, uh, like, uh, like China are called as, like, an asshole in the international arena because of ivory. Because well, do you think Yao Ming and Li Bingbing coming to, to, to Africa to pose with little cute elephants is going to help? I think it's going to be a help, but okay. honestly, based on my observation, it's like the media effect and the public awareness effect is not, it's not that strong in China. For example, like um, a lot of people they haven't even heard about like the some of my friends in like for example studying in New York, we haven't heard at all about like the the issue like like Yao Ming Li Bingbing they went there to do these kind of things. Um, h- how do you think though that kind of awareness should be increased? I mean, for example, um you know, what, one example I'm thinking of is the the uh, activism that Greenpeace um, has been and, and Sea Shepherd has been pushing against Japanese whaling. Um, you know, kind of and, and these kind of big stunts that they where they confront whaling ships on the open sea. Um, you know that that all, that draws a certain amount of attention in Japan, but then I think you know still it it, it doesn't necessarily work that well. Um, you know, kind of what, what kind of what kind of media do you think would be the most effective? Well. I would say no matter what kind of media, like as long as there are more better stories written in Chinese about this kind of problem, it's going to help a lot. For example, like last week, I just published my article about Rhino Hong in Southern Weekly. And I don't believe there, there are some similar type of in-depth, like few investigation from Chinese journalists like in Africa. The reason is very simple. The Chinese media here, they are the government national media. What they are doing is usually the news of, like, for example, President Hu Jintao visit which country and say, say, like, we have, we need to maintain good relationship, blah, 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 those kind of things. And the media that is more, is more likely to do those in-depth or, like, detailed stories, 
they don't have the money to afford any journalist bureau in Africa at all. They don't even have the money to send their journalists to come here to write things and publish things. If I was not on this fellowship, Southern Weekly would not pay me the money to come here and write these stories, which doesn't mean this could not be a good story. So I think as long as you increase the, if you try to reduce the communication gap between China and Africa, it's going to help a lot. And the reason like why I feel like Li Bingbing and Yao Ming's story was not, um, is not that influential in China is I, I simply think just because in terms of like the PR, the media, the media reporting is not as good as it could be. But I do think this kind of things is very effective. Let, let me just give a little bit of background to our to our listeners who may not be familiar with Southern Weekly. And Southern Weekly is one of the most progressive uh, newspapers in all of China. Uh, they're based out of Guangzhou in in Guangdong Province, and they have you know they're they're very very um, you know adventurous. They're much more avant garde than a lot of the other media uh, that is far more tame. Uh, Kobus, to your point though, uh, you know. The problem is that in China, the media is ultimately controlled by the party and is ultimately censored by the party so that nothing will really violate the government line uh, and, and really challenge people to, to see that China is complicit in, in, in the killing of this. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, here's my kind of take in my two cents, that China must pay a huge diplomatic price on a bilateral level for this. So with Mozambique, with Kenya, with South Africa, one by one, activists need to target that relationship. And when China feels that it is actually suffering, that it is going to lose contracts, it's going to lose access to markets, it's going to face pressure Correct. on the international level, then they will change because you've got to hit China in the bottom in the pocketbook. If you don't hit yeah. China in the pocketbook, they're not going to change. And the problem is, is that Western environmental activists are using a moral outrage technique which works in the West where we have a more a different value structure and different moral structure. And it's not to say one is better than the other. The Chinese, as we talked about in an earlier show with Hong Xiang, do not look at this in a moral construct. They don't look at the killing of elephants. They look at it as a product to be sold. But the Chinese need to be paid. They need to suffer on the, uh, in their pocketbooks, and that will then force them to change. That's my opinion. What's your reaction, Hong Xiang, to that thought? Uh, yeah, I do want to intervene, in, interrupt a little bit. So I think like, well, I think the question is actually more complicated. So the first point you mentioned, like the government censorship. Well, actually, I don't think it's a big, it's a very big problem in terms of like topics like this. For example, my article on Southern Weekly was not censored at all. It's totally fine to publish a story about Ivory Rhino. No, no, that, that story it's, is okay to, to publish, yes. but when we start pushing and to say that the Chinese government is, one, there's Chinese corruption that's leading to the sale of illegal ivory in, in China, two, to directly link the Chinese consumer and the Chinese people to the violence that's going on in a very direct and, and violent way, I'm not so sure the Chinese censors wouldn't, uh, wouldn't block that out. Because it would give their critics overseas, particularly in the United States State Department, more ammunition to criticize the China for, for their activities in Africa. Yeah, I think, well, I think it's a complicated question. So first, I do agree that like China will be quite defensive, like in terms of like people talking about, well, you, 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 you result in this ivory trade, in this Hong trade. But it doesn't mean that it's like, it's totally... 
Well, I believe there would be if there's enough public awareness, there is enough public demand, and there's enough communication, it's totally possible. And another point I want to say is like the molarity thing. I think the reason why the consumers, Chinese consumers, they're disconnected with this is just because it's just a common phenomenon to. I think all consumers, when you are using a, like the Ivory product or when you are using iPhone, you usually would not think about what's happening at the source of this unless there are, there's enough information to show you what's going on and then like influence you. There's a third bigger and, and another enormous problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of, I, I don't want to overstate this, but I don't think African governments care. I don't yeah, think they do. No, I think that's part um, of it. We got to be honest about it. You know, kind of the the idea of a, of a of a concerned African government wringing its hands in distress over dead elephants that itself is a construction, a Western construction of, of you know kind of of, of kind of, of what, what environmentalists want to believe, but among other reasons because it plays into narratives of of poor Africa having things forced upon it. You know, forever, and it and it positions Western environmentalists as you know, in some way, kind of anti-colonialist. Mm. Um, you know, kind mm-hmm. of in you know, in, in solidarity with the African governments, which is not true. Mm. Like the African governments, you know, kind of the in, in African course, what you the, the line you find most often is, oh, these Western people, they care so much more for for elephants and, and rhinos than they care for African people, and that is the line that is very, very dominant. And you find that, um, you know, kind of uh, even when African governments don't say it explicitly, they're dealing with an electorate who thinks that. Um, and, you know, kind of what you found recently is that South African uh, President Jacob Zuma actually skipped out of, of uh, you know, kind of high-level talks about these, about these problems and went home and dealt with political issues, you know. Yeah. Kind of, so um, I think, you know, yeah, you know, kind of the, one of the biggest problems in, in all of this is that African governments don't see it, you know, kind of they, they don't think it's, it's that important to them, actually. Yeah, I think that's that's rather, I mean, that, that, that could, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Hongxiang, you know, one of the, the, the ironic mm-hmm. points that was brought up on our uh, Facebook page was China goes to great lengths to protect the few remaining elephants it has down in on, on the Thai border um, you know, there are elephants in China with ivory, ironically, uh, and they're protected mm-hmm. and the pandas are protected and all sorts of wildlife in China are protected. Um, and, you know, you kind of think, well, if, if they do it there, why can't they be sensitive to the fact that it's important in other countries? So first, I think it goes back to the to the point I mentioned before, like the Chinese are actually very disconnected with what's happening in the world, because actually I have seen like. Some of my Chinese friends in Africa, when they realize like the the information about elephant poaching and those kind of things, like they are shocked as well and they are angry as well. Okay. But the problem is usually there's huge disconnection between that and here. And also, I think another point I want to mention is like, so what the Chinese experience in Africa? They come to Africa, they see like the police is totally corrupt, like the government very corrupt and low efficient. They see the local people just you just give them money and they will do everything for you. They bring you ivory, they bring rhino horn, they bring turtles, pangolin to you to sell, and sometimes for a very cheap price. So the Chinese in Africa, they based on my investigation and my communication with them, they have this kind of mindset. Well. You guys are ruining your own country anyway. So that's not my job to correct your problems. So since you are ruining the countries anyway, why can't I just take some small advantage out of it? 
So, Cobus, this is ending up being, I think, probably the most depressing <laughs> podcast we've had in two and a half years. It really doesn't leave. I mean, there is not a lot of hope out here. I mean, you know, these poor animals yeah. are up against, you know, insurmountable odds in my point of in my view. And I think it just because no one really at the end of the day cares enough. That is no one with enough power to actually change anything cares enough. These animals are you know, at the bottom of everybody's priority list when it comes to the politicians, when it comes to the economic interests. Um, you know, and also, just to be fair, you're right by saying that Chinese consumers are disconnected from where these products come from. But I think most consumers are very disconnected in this globalized supply chain of where their products yes. come from. You know, yes. uh, the average American consumer, the average French consumer, they go into a supermarket. They have no idea that, you know, substandard labor conditions went into picking that lettuce and, and the food with processing plants that are making their processed food is, is you know, is not regulated. Um, you know, where the fish came from for, for, their, for their, you know, fish nuggets and things like that. We're all disconnected. So that's, that's not simply a Chinese thing. So, um, well, no. uh, you know, yeah. Kobus, let, let me leave it to you now for some closing thoughts and, and, and your, your perspective on this issue, you know, hearing what we've heard from Hong Xiang. Yeah, and I, I can actually depress you even a little bit more. The um, I think one of the one of the weird problems with all of this, the whole you know miasma we find ourselves in with this problem, is that the people who are the most vocal um, about about pushing for the rights and, and protection of elephants and, and rhinos are, are white middle class people, you know, kind of from the northern hemisphere, and the very fact that they are the people who are pushing this is making it harder to get this issue actually like popularized in, in Africa because Africans are so you know kind of sick and tired of being spoken at by rich northerners that that's just it, it you know kind of the fact that that you can characterize this as a white person's issue that itself kills the issue in African discourse frequently because it immediately it, it immediately forces Africans into a position where they're either having to defend it or having to complain that that you know kind of that the issue is being taken away from them or whatever you know kind of all you know kind of it, it forces people back on a bunch of rhetorical kind of fallbacks um, and you know kind of but but what what's your other option tell telling Greenpeace not to talk about this I don't know no, you know I, kind I of mean, so it, yeah. it just it just it, it plays on a bunch of different senses you know kind of like sensitivities within Africa, um, you know, kind of that unless African society gets past these and actually sees these animals as, as economically beneficial, um, you're not going to, you know, we, we're not going to get over it. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, there's, there's nothing more to say. It's just sad. I mean, it's just sad. I mean, especially when you look at the rhinos and the elephants, as being among, I mean, truly the most majestic of, of of animals on this planet, and the way that they are killed is just—it's it's, it's awful. It's shocking, and it's just—it it yes. makes you want to vomit. And so, okay, well, listen, Hongxiang. Normally, we we have a very upbeat, kind of positive, you know, <laughs> kind of podcast. So, I, I hope to have you back during the time that you're at your, you know, Wits China Africa Reporting Project Fellowship, because I think it's fascinating. Uh, we'd like to check in with you over the course of your fellowship, kind of hear what you're doing. You and one other Chinese journalist are there. It would be fascinating to get your insights on all sorts of China-Africa issues from the point of view 
of uh, you know the, the Chinese mindset and that you're getting into the Chinese community mm-hmm. and talking. That's been one of the most difficult things for for journalists, both African and Western journalists, is actually talking to Chinese people. Um, you know, and yes. it's easier for you. It's easier for those of us who speak Chinese. But certainly, you know, me as a white guy walking in was never easy. Um, but nonetheless, no. I think even if you um, speak Chinese, even if you speak Chinese, they you know they're very yeah. protective of the information. So we'd love to have you back. Until we have you back, mm-hmm. though, we'd love to guide people as to where they can follow some of the work that you're doing. Uh, you know, do you have a Weibo feed in Chinese? Do you have Twitter feed in English? What's your website? Site. What can do? What can people do if they want to follow what you're doing? Well, first you can always find me on Facebook, like with the English name, and then you can go to the website of www.chinagoingout.org, which is a website found by Chinese people with international background and also focusing on China, Africa, China South America relationship. And uh, so that's, that's our website, chinagoingout.org. That was put together, oh, uh, yeah. uh, put together by a group of Columbia University students, and you are a recent graduate of Columbia University. So congratulations there, Cobus. Uh, where can people find you um, uh, you'll find me on, my, on our Facebook page and you'll see my name in brackets when I when I comment on comments and um, I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E and, and before I kind of go on any further I think the, one of the kind of key important things about Huang Hongxiang is that he does represent a new generation of, of Chinese who are engaging in global discussions, who are getting out there and talking. You know, there's this perception that the Chinese are so introverted and and don't have these discussions, and I think that's not true. And, and you and your your former classmates with ChinaGoingOut.org uh, really represent that. So hats off to you for what you're doing, um, especially Thank in the you. reporting that you're doing as well. Um, you can find me over at, at Twitter. I'm at e o lander e o l a n d e r. You can also I'm on Weibo. If you uh, Hongxiang, if you follow Weibo at the Da Bizi Big Nose Foreigner. Um, <laughs> and so you can also follow our podcast if you'd like uh, on iTunes. That's the best way to find it. You can also pick us up on Stitcher, SoundCloud, the BlackBerry Network. We're also on the Amazon Kindle now. Uh, so we're all over and we're also on the web. And uh, if you subscribe to the ChinaAfricanews.com newsletter every week, Henry Hall, the editor there, is going to put a link to our latest podcast there as well. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be right back. 